Uh, I'd like to thank everybody. Are we ready to go? For coming. It's, uh, Okay, great. Thank you. I'm really pleased today to be introducing uh, Jeff McMahon. This is uh, a person whose work I've been interested in a long time. He's uh, a philosopher at Rutgers University, as I'm sure most of you know. Um, when we started thinking about uh, filling the peace chair with someone in political theory and philosophy, his name came right to the top of our list of who should we consult, who should we talk to, who would know this field better than anyone else. He specializes in normative ethics, practical ethics, and political philosophy. Uh, he also studies metaphysics and legal theory. He's the author of The Ethics of Killing, Problems at the Margins of Life, where he explores the ethics of killing in a framework where the moral status of the individual killed is uncertain. McMahon's uh, work focuses on the ethics of killing in war, as self-defense and as a mode of punishment. And his talk today, Killing Civilians in War, will address his research in this area. A significant strand of his current work is dedicated to re-examining traditional just war theory. Uh, with the current rise of a global war on terror, there has been a resurgence of scholarly and political and journalistic attempts to theorize the allegedly just war. And Jeff McMahon today is going to seek to explore the perceived assumptions grounding many of these arguments using the tools of metaphysics and ethical theory. Without further ado, Thanks. you. Thank you very much. Um, th this talk is uh, um, a descendant of uh, a cruder talk that I gave a little over two years ago in Oxford as part of a series of lectures. And each of the lectures there had a different title. and, and I've changed the title uh, of it a little bit. When I gave it at Oxford, it was just called Killing Civilians. And um, the uh, sponsors of the series of lectures had a set of posters done up for each, one for each lecture. And they included the, the venue right with the title. So the posters said, Killing Civilians in the South Park Chemistry uh, <laughs> Building. Um, was the advertisement for the event. But you're, you're safe. You don't need to come armed. Um, let me start off by telling you briefly what the traditional theory of the just war says about uh, killing civilians in war. There are two main principles in the traditional theory governing uh, the conduct of war, and both of these principles offer protections to civilians. First, there is what's called the requirement of discrimination. And most people think that what this principle requires is that civilians are not to be killed or attacked or harmed intentionally in war. Indeed, harming or killing civilians intentionally in war is considered terrorism. But as you know, it's virtually impossible to fight a war in contemporary conditions with population densities and highly destructive weapons without killing civilians. It just happens as a side effect of military action. And this inevitable killing of civilians as a side effect in war is governed by a separate principle called the principle of proportionality. And according to the traditional theory, it can be permissible knowingly or foreseeably to kill civilians in war, provided that 
the killing is unintended. It's not intended as a means to the achievement of one's aims and is also proportionate. So the proportionality constraint comes into operation only in the case in which civilians are killed unintentionally. There's no such thing as a proportionate intentional killing of civilians because they are not liable to be killed. Now, I think the traditional view raises a number of really deep and difficult questions. First of all, notice that the traditional theory places a lot of weight on what an agent's intentions are. That is, a a fact about what's going on in somebody's mind, not about what's actually happening in the world. And I think the situation has changed in recent decades so that I would say that now the orthodox view among moral philosophers is that the intention with which an agent acts cannot affect the permissibility of the agent's action. That is, whether an effect is intended or unintended can't affect the permissibility of bringing that effect about. And that's largely for the reason that I gave just a moment ago. People are skeptical about whether facts about what's going on in somebody's mind rather than what they're actually doing in the world can make the difference between permissibility and impermissibility. Uh, I share the concern of most philosophers about the relevance of intention to permissibility, but uh, so far I'm unwilling to give it up, give up the relevance of intention, and that's really because of the implications in the area of warfare uh, of abandoning the idea that that distinction has moral significance. If you give up the idea that intention is significant, you really lose the distinction between legitimate acts of war, or what most of us consider to be legitimate acts of war, and terrorism. Um, If you think it can be permissible to kill civilians as a side effect of military action in war, subject to certain constraints, but don't believe that intention is relevant, then you're going to end up endorsing terrorism in a much larger range of cases than I think any of us would be willing to do. Uh, If, on the other hand, you deny that killing civilians even unintentionally can be permissible, you end up being committed to pacifism of some sort or other. So as far as I can tell, um, if you don't accept the relevance of intention to permissibility, you have to choose between embracing pacifism or accepting the permissibility of terrorism in a wide range of cases. And that's a pretty uncomfortable choice, I think, for most of us. So one of the things that uh, I hope you'll take away from the talk is that This issue in moral theory about the relevance of intentions to the morality of action turns out to be very important in this, in this area and challenges some of our deepest beliefs about the ethics of war. Second question uh, raised by the traditional view is how it's possible for people who are fighting in an unjust war that lacks a just cause to fight in a way 
that satisfies the proportionality requirement. Remember, I said the traditional theory says it's permissible to kill civilians if you kill them unintentionally and the action is proportionate. That means is that uh, the good that one can achieve through the action that has the killing of civilians as an unintended side effect has to be sufficiently great to outweigh the harm that is caused to these innocent people. But if you're fighting in a war that's unjust because it has no just cause, it's very difficult to see what good your action might achieve that could weigh against the harm that you're doing to innocent people. To me, what this says is that, in general, it's not possible for people who are fighting without a just cause to satisfy this proportionality condition. Therefore, if satisfying the proportionality condition is a, a necessary condition of the permissibility of the action, it seems to follow that it's not permissible to fight in unjust wars. That is, if it is an inevitable effect of fighting in unjust wars that innocent people are going to be killed as a side effect of the action. So there's another uh, important challenge to people's ordinary thinking about the morality of war. Most people assume that it's permissible to fight in war even if it turns out that it's an unjust war. But if you take the principles governing the killing of innocent civilians seriously, it's hard to see how that could be true. A third issue that uh, is raised by the traditional theory is what role national partiality might play in the proportionality requirement. Um, imagine, for example, that there's some military operation that you want to carry out and you know that it's unavoidably going to cause some civilian casualties. And you're thinking about whether the action is or is not proportionate. That is, is the, is the killing of the civilians or harming of the civilians proportionate in relation to the good that you hope that the act of war will achieve? Well, imagine it's a case in which the innocent civilians who are going to be killed by the action are your compatriots, your fellow citizens. Okay, you'd do one kind of, you'd engage in a certain kind of thinking. Can we kill some of our own people, you know, incidentally, as a side effect of this action in order to achieve this military goal? Is it worth it? Is the goal important enough? You can imagine yourself deliberating about that question. Does anything change morally if the civilians who would be injured or killed would be foreigners? members of the enemy civilian population. Would you think it would be acceptable, for example, to rule out the permissibility of the attack if the innocent people who were going to be killed were your fellow citizens, but not if they were going to be innocent civilians of the enemy state? Could you do that? Well, certainly this kind of partiality has a role in our ordinary moral thinking in some cases particularly with respect to saving lives. Um, if, I can, if I have a choice between saving an American and saving a foreigner, and that's the only information I have, and I can't save both of them, 
it seems permissible for me to save the American, to give priority to my, to my fellow citizen. Um, what if I can save one American or three foreigners? Then it becomes a little more dubious. On the other hand, perhaps if I'm a soldier, I have a professional obligation here that comes into operation so that um, if I'm a soldier and I have a choice between saving one American citizen and three foreigners, maybe I ought to save the one American citizen, whereas if I'm just a private individual, maybe I ought to save the three foreigners. But questions about saving people are morally different from questions about killing people. And I think it's really not very plausible to suppose that the constraint against killing people gets progressively weaker the more or the, the less closely related people are to us in these ways. I also think that, uh, and we can argue about this if you want, that co-nationality is not a terribly important relation between people. It's not like my relation to my child, for example. It's a much more distant and less morally significant relation. So on this issue, I am inclined to have a view, and that is that where killing is concerned, it really shouldn't make any difference what the nationality of the victim is, as long as the victim is a completely innocent person who's done nothing to make him or herself liable to the harm. Okay, thus far, uh, I have been granting an assumption of contemporary just war theory, and that's the assumption that civilians have, as a class, a certain protected status, that they are uh, morally immune, as is sometimes said, to uh, the kinds of harm to which combatants are morally vulnerable. Their protected status is such that, as I said earlier, they are not to be harmed intentionally, though they may be harmed unintentionally, but only when the unintended harm satisfies this proportionality restriction. But we need to ask, what's the moral basis of civilian, civilian immunity? What makes civilians so special in war? Why are they so different? Well, international law gives an, a, a, a rather obvious, pragmatic answer, and that is just, I think, we want in war to have some rules that minimize the overall harm and destruction that's caused by war. The distinction between combatants and non-combatants, soldiers and civilians, is a nice, sharp, bright line. And if we can get everybody to respect a convention that says you can attack these people but don't attack those people, and in particular if the people you don't attack are the ones who are kind of keeping ordinary life going while the war is in progress so that you're protecting the core elements of the society so that they can survive the war, um, then that's a, a good rule to have, and that's the rule that we have in international law. Basically, the justification there is pragmatic and, and consequentialist. It's focusing on the consequences of having the rule. Uh, in moral philosophy and in the theory of the just war, the answer that's given is quite different. The answer that traditional just war theory gives is that Civilians are innocent in the sense that they are not posing a threat to anyone. The criterion of liability to attack in war on the traditional theory is posing a threat. So 
anyone who poses a threat to someone else can be attacked defensively. But civilians aren't posing a threat. Therefore, attacking civilians can't count as defense. It's aggressive killing. Uh, and because, therefore, because they are not posing a threat to anyone, they are not liable to be attacked or harmed in any way in war, whereas all combatants, supposedly by definition, are posing a threat, and therefore they are legitimate targets of attack. They have made themselves morally liable to be attacked simply by virtue of becoming combatants, by occupying that role. Um, what I mean by saying that someone is liable to be harmed or to uh, be attacked in war is just this, that they have done something that means that if you harm them in a certain way, you won't be wronging them or violating their rights. They will have forfeited a right not to be harmed in that way by virtue of something that they have done. They won't have any valid complaint against being treated in the way in which you're treating them. That's what I mean when I say uh, somebody is liable to be harmed, liable to be attacked, liable to be killed in war. It's a moral notion even though it's borrowed from the law. So the basic distinction in just war theory that undergirds the requirement of discrimination is the distinction between combatants and non-combatant soldiers and civilians. And the moral significance of the distinction is that whereas combatants pose a threat, non-combatants or civilians don't pose a threat and therefore cannot be attacked in a way that is defensive. Um, this is a point that has been made before. It'll be familiar to many of you, but I'll just make it in a way that I hope will be a little more striking. That is that it's just not true that all soldiers are threatening, and it's not true that all combatants are non-threatening. give you some examples. In a time of war, a military lawyer is in uniform and counts as a combatant and a legitimate target. But a military lawyer may spend her time arguing with the, the government that certain tactics that the government wants to employ are illegal. So a military lawyer may actually spend the course of a war restraining the conduct of the war and thereby reducing the threat that people on the other side face. Not contributing to it, but actually restraining it. Similarly, there are lots of civilians who contribute directly to the threat that their country poses and often in ways that are more threatening than any individual combatant. Think about, for example, the uh, scientists working for the Manhattan Project in World War II. They posed a much greater danger to the Japanese than any soldier on a ship out in the Pacific somewhere. But they were considered civilians. They were just scientists working in laboratories and universities. So the distinction between soldier and civilian doesn't correspond to the distinction between those who pose a threat and those who don't pose a threat. But in a way, I think that's really irrelevant because posing a threat isn't what makes somebody a legitimate target of attack and war. It's not what makes somebody liable to be harmed in war. You can see this if you think just briefly about individual self-defense. 
we're not entitled to defend ourselves against threats that are justified and to which we have made ourselves liable. If I'm out shooting people at the local McDonald's, favorite NRA pastime, um, uh, and some police marksman comes to, to, you know, the only way to stop me is to shoot me, I don't have a right of self-defense against the police marksman. I've forfeited my right not to be attacked in this way by virtue of what I'm doing. So posing a threat uh, isn't what makes somebody liable. The police marksman poses a threat to me, but that doesn't make him or her liable to be attacked by me. You know, when you, when you harm somebody justifiably in a way to which they have made themselves liable, you don't forfeit any rights. You don't make yourself liable in that way. And I think the exact same thing holds true in war. A combatant fighting in a just war who's simply defending himself and other innocent people against wrongful attack doesn't thereby do anything to make himself a morally legitimate target of attack. When you're simply defending yourself and other innocent people against a wrongful threat, you're not doing anything to forfeit your rights or to make yourself liable to attack. So I have a, a, a very sort of deviant understanding of uh, the requirement of discrimination in war. I don't think that all combatants in war are morally legitimate targets of attack. What I think is the correct criterion for liability to attack in war is moral responsibility for an unjust or wrongful threat. It differs in a couple of ways from traditional thinking. Uh, I insist that the threat be wrongful or unjust. So I have a very asymmetrical kind of view about the morality of warfare. But for today's purposes, one of the most important I mean, the, the more important difference that I want to emphasize is that I stress moral responsibility for a threat, not posing a threat. Usually, of course, when a person is morally responsible for some threat, that person is also posing the threat. But, of course, there are a lot of cases in which that's not true. People who are uh, instigators or aiders and abettors of, uh, of threats may not be themselves threatening agents, but may nonetheless have moral responsibility for the threat. So let me give you a, a, little, a little story. This is, this is just meant to be a kind of hypothetical example to bring out intuitively what I want to emphasize today. It's a you know, cute little philosopher's story, so bear, bear with me for a minute while I make this thing up. Suppose you've, you, there's, a, there's a, a small southern town. I'm, I'm from the south, so I can get away with this kind of thing. You know, some little small southern hick town, and you can put it in the past if you'd like. And this town has been run with a kind of iron fist by the local sheriff for years. He's much admired and so on, and he has been he has had complete power and dominance over this little town. And in the past, the mayor has just been a kind of token presence, a mere figurehead. But now they've got a new mayor, and the new mayor is displacing the sheriff and taking the, the sheriff's power away, right, and, and rightfully so. But the sheriff uh, obviously 
doesn't want this to happen. So what he does is he thinks, I've got to get rid of the new mayor. So he summons to him a credulous and uneducated 18-year-old farmhand. And he tells the farmhand a lot of alarming but false things about the mayor that together make a really good case for assassinating the mayor. And the sheriff then temporarily deputizes the farmhand, pays him a very handsome deputy's salary, and gives him the job of getting rid of the mayor. Uh, And subtly but unmistakably threatens him with retribution if he doesn't do the job or if he confesses to it after it's done. So he said, you know, this, this, this farmhand is one of the sheriff's admirers and he's not very bright and so on. So even though the farmhand has some reservations about this, the combination of the sheriff's perceived authority, the duress to which the farmhand has been subjected, his own uncertainty about the facts, that is, he believes the things that the sheriff has told him and so on. It's a very convincing case that he's got. Uh, So he feels compelled to carry out the sheriff's orders. But you can imagine now that the conversation between the sheriff and the farmhand has been overheard by somebody, and this somebody goes to tell the mayor, and the mayor, therefore, arms himself uh, immediately uh, and is going to try to do something about it, but lo and behold, before he can kind of notify people about the plot and whatever, here comes the farmhand to, to, to kill him. And he, suppose he can't shoot the farmhand because the farmhand is sort of hidden behind a tree or something like that. But off in the distance, he, he sees the, the sheriff. Uh, the sheriff is in the distance. He can't get there in time to do anything, even if he were disposed to do so, to save the mayor's life. So suppose that the only way the mayor can save his life in this kind of case is by shooting the sheriff. Remember, he's armed himself, but he can't shoot the deputy. The only thing he can, uh, the, yeah, the farmhand deputy. The only thing he can do is shoot the sheriff. Um, and what, what he rightly thinks is that if he shoots the sheriff, the, the deputized farmhand will feel that he's released from his duty to, to kill the mayor, about which he has some doubts, but he's doing it because of the coercion, the authority, and so on. But if the authority figure disappears and the coercion disappears, he won't do it. Is it permissible for the mayor to shoot the sheriff? I think it is, and I think that's because of the sheriff's moral responsibility that the mayor face uh, for, for the threat that the mayor faces from the deputy. In fact, I think that if the mayor had a choice between saving himself by killing the farmhand and saving himself by killing the sheriff, he ought morally to kill the sheriff instead of the farmhand. The, 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 the farmhand is just the sheriff's dupe. Now, and that, you know, I think to put this in the language that I was using earlier, it seems to me that the sheriff has made himself liable to be harmed by having created, through his own wrongful action, a situation in which the mayor has to choose between his own life and that of the sheriff. I think that this is a a, a typical kind of self-defense situation with an added twist, namely the sheriff's responsibility for the predicament of the mayor lies in the immediate past rather than in the present. That's all. It's just a matter of timing. Uh, 
Now, if you were thinking about real-life analogs of this kind of example, you would think of the sheriff as being the political leader and the deputized farmhand as being a combatant. Um, But civilians can sometimes, civilians who are not political leaders, can sometimes occupy positions relevantly analogous to that of the sheriff in the example. Let me give you briefly uh, one real-life example. It's not precisely analogous, but it's close enough intuitively for my purposes. You may remember that in the early 1950s, I think it was 1953, 54, the Eisenhower government organized a coup and overthrew the government of Guatemala. It was a democratically elected leftist government in Guatemala. Uh, And when the United States organized and uh, carried out that coup, we basically turned Guatemala into a kind of torture dungeon for the next three and a half, four decades. Part of the impetus for that unjust and aggressive small-scale war came from some executives of the United Fruit Company, some of whose unused plantations had been nationalized by the Arbenz government uh, for redistribution to the peasantry who were living on the lands. Uh, The government gave United Fruit Company what United Fruit Company had claimed uh, that the lands were worth for tax purposes. You can imagine how they got screwed there. Um, some people have questioned whether the intervention of United Fruit was really important in that episode. Uh, Howard Hunt, who was subsequently Nixon's director for covert operations, was the kind of mastermind of that operation. And he's on record, even fairly recently, as having said that he thought United Fruit's intervention was decisive. So here are some executives in United Fruit going to the Eisenhower administration. They, by, by the way, they were, there were all kinds of family connections and business connections and so on between people in the United Fruit, uh, the higher echelons of United Fruit and the American government. So here are civilians basically prompting and provoking an unjust war uh, for economic reasons, reasons of economic self-interest. So one can think of the executives of United Fruit as to some extent analogous to the sheriff in my example. That's, of course, a very unusual case. Civilians outside of government almost never have that kind of uh, power within government. So the responsibility that civilians may have for an unjust war is usually uh, very low in degree. It's a very low level of responsibility. But even when an individual's responsibility for an unjust threat is low, it can be proportionate to subject such a person to lesser, non-lethal harms to which that person may be liable. And another way of saying that is that if a person's responsibility for uh, a threat is low, that person may have a low degree of liability 
to defensive action, which may mean that that person is liable to certain lesser forms of harm. I think we can think of some obvious examples here. If you have an unjust war being fought uh, by a country in which it, the, the very culture of the society in which the people are participating is the sort of obvious source of the war. You think, for example, of Nazi Germany and the, and the aggressive wars of Nazi Germany. Those things were a kind of natural outgrowth of the culture that gave rise to Nazism. And the uh, Nazi wars enjoyed very considerable popular support among the civilian population. Now, when you have that kind of situation, terrible, unjust war being prosecuted by a country where the civilian population has, in general, a, a fairly high level of complicity, it may be permissible to subject the civilian population to the effects of economic sanctions, or in the case of Germany in World War II, blockade, where this actually does cause economic distress and some suffering among the civilian population. At least some of the members of that population may have no valid complaint against being harmed in that kind of way, given their... Uh, uh, role as accessories to the unjust war. Also, in the aftermath of an unjust war, we may think that at least some civilians could be liable to pay reparations for harms done during the war. This would be kind of ex post compensation, the analog after a war of what we do in tort law. Um, Another thing to which civilians may be liable, lesser form of harm to which civilians may make themselves liable through their contributions to an unjust war is military occupation in the aftermath of an unjust war of aggression. Again, I don't think that most Germans or most Japanese were being treated unjustly by being subject to Allied occupation in the aftermath of World War II. They set themselves up for that. They really didn't have most of them, a valid complaint against the burdens of occupation because of what they had done to contribute to the war. So it seems to me pretty clear that civilians can be liable to some kinds of harm by virtue uh, or because of the contributions that they make to unjust war. I don't, let me, let me issue a disclaimer. I don't mean collectively here. I mean by virtue of what individuals themselves have done. So all these forms of harming, economic sanctions, demand for reparations, occupation, and so on, are indiscriminate. And some people who are not liable to be harmed by these forms of action are going to be harmed anyway. And they're going to be being treated unjustly. But what I'm saying is a large proportion of a population may not be being treated unjustly or being wrongfully harmed by being subject to these lesser harms. Okay, so now the question is, can civilians ever be morally liable to attack? Can they ever be, this is a different question, can they ever be legitimate targets of attack? Let me start off with one suggestion here, and that is we usually think of liability as providing a justification for what we do to people intentionally. That is, if we think of people as liable to be punished, we, we, what that means is that provides a justification for our intentionally punishing them. But it seems to me that sometimes liability is relevant in a curious way to what we may do to people foreseeably but unintentionally. 
So let me give you another little hypothetical example here. I'm going to try to finish in about six minutes. I hope I can do that. I'm trying to keep it to 40 minutes, which is what I was told to do. Um, imagine that there are two military... We're fighting a just war, and there are two military targets on the, in the territory of the unjust aggressor country. They're of equal military importance. We can destroy only one of them. We have to decide which of these targets to destroy. Each one of them is located next to a village. Uh, so when we destroy the military target, we're going to kill some civilians in the, in the neighboring village. Suppose, in one, suppose one village is notorious for uh, its rabid support for the government and its unjust war. These are the super patriots in this, in this village. The village next to the other target is known to be a village full of dissidents who are repressed by the government, who protest the war, and so on. We can attack one or the other of these military targets. Which one should we attack? It seems to me that the right thing to do is to attack the military target next to the village that contains a large number of people who have supported and contributed in certain ways to the unjust war. Those civilians, some of them at any rate, the higher proportion of those civilians uh, are going to be liable to some harms, liable to suffer some harms if that's necessary in order for us to achieve our just cause. They're going to have, let's put it this way, a lesser complaint against being harmed than the villagers in the dissident village would have. So that I would myself favor uh, attacking the military facility next to the collaborationist village, the, that's not quite the right word, but the, the enthusiastic, the village of enthusiastic supporters, even if more people would be killed if we bombed that target than would be killed if we bombed the other target. So I think liability has a role even in our thinking about proportionality in the side effect harms that we're going to cause through military action. One point to take home from that thought is, and from the others, is that I think it's only civilians on the unjust side in a war, only civilians in a country whose war does not have a just cause, who can, in principle, be liable to suffer these harms, the harms of occupation, harms of uh, economic sanctions, or harms of side effects from military action. So again, you see here the, what I referred to earlier as a sort of asymmetrical view of the morality of war that I hold. It's very different from the traditional just war theory and very different from the international law of war. Final question, the big question. Can civilians ever be morally liable to intentional military attack in war? Well, it may be hard to think of cases. Um, could go back to my United Fruit Company example. Suppose that the Guatemalans could have prevented the coup in Guatemala by assassinating the executives of United Fruit Company who approached the Eisenhower administration and put pressure on the administration to conduct the coup. Would that have been permissible, killing civilians in that way? 
Suppose it would be effective. Suppose it really would have been effective. Suppose that coup could have been prevented by killing the executives of United Fruit Company. Uh, I believe that it would have been permissible. And indeed, better than killing lots and having lots of young soldiers killed in an effort to defend Guatemala against the uh, invading forces. Here's another highly controversial example just for you to think about. Israeli settlers in the West Bank. These are people who are knowingly, willingly, eagerly involved in a form of aggression, a form of aggression that people think of as constituting a just cause for war, namely the protection the preservation of territorial rights of a political community. They are occupying and seizing and taking over and establishing moral rights to land that really belongs to Palestinians. They're doing that because if you occupy land for long enough and you build infrastructure on that land, if you raise your children and your grandchildren on that land, you gradually acquire, or your descendants acquire, moral claims to stay. It's a very insidious strategy of conquest, and it's been going on for a long time, and these people know what they're doing. Now, they're all armed, of course, but as we all know, so are most Americans. I mean, most Americans have lots of guns in their homes too. Uh, so that doesn't make them combatants. The, the, the settlers in the West Bank are civilians. Are they liable to attack if necessary to expel them from those lands? My view is yes, they are. Not their children, not people who are there involuntarily or non-voluntarily. But the people who are there willingly, who are involved in this creeping strategy of annexation, I think they are. But they are civilians. Now, final word. Um, I've given you a kind of theoretical rationale for holding civilians liable to various forms of harm. And I, I'm probably sounding a whole lot like Osama bin Laden, uh, who... <laughs> who has actually gone on record saying slightly similar things. So I want to uh, close by distancing myself a, 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 a bit from, <laughs> from that company. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to wind up in terribly mixed company here. Um, first point to notice is there are lots of constraints here on civilian liability. First is, of course, most civilian... The, the, degree of responsibility that most civilians have for an unjust war and for harms that are done in unjust wars is very, very low. So their level of liability is very, very low. Very, very seldom the case that an, a civilian outside of government could be liable to intentional military attack. Even if there are some civilians who are liable to intentional military attack, they are almost invariably intermingled with large numbers of civilians who are not. So 
attacking them militarily is almost always going to be disproportionate because you're going to be harming and killing people who are largely innocent. Third, those are two reflections. Liability is low. Those who may be liable to some harms are usually intermixed with those who are not. Third point is that because the responsibility of civilians for an unjust war usually lies in or derives from action that they have done in the past and is not ongoing because they most civilians are not actually at any particular moment posing a threat. As I said earlier, action against them cannot be literally defensive. You can't prevent, you know, literally block the threat by attacking civilians the way you can by attacking combatants. So attacking civilians will almost always be militarily completely inefficacious. If attacking civilians is going to do any good in the achievement of a just cause, the causal mechanism is going to have to operate in a different way. And the the standard way is, of course, uh, terroristically. What we did at the end of World War II, bombing uh, Japanese cities and killing civilians in the hope that that would be sufficient to um, intimidate, to terrorize the population and intimidate the government and coerce a surrender in that way. So I want to end with with a, with with a with a question for you. Uh, I don't have a terribly good answer to this. I think it's a kind of open question morally. Um, I have said that some civilians could make themselves liable to various forms of harm, and perhaps even in some rare cases, like maybe Israeli settlers, to intentional attack with weapons. But suppose that it had suppose that the causation wouldn't operate the way it would, say, in attacking Israeli settlers. That would genu- that would be that would be genuinely defensive in a way. You'd be expelling these people from the lands that they are uh, trying to conquer or annex. Um, what if the causal me- mechanism did have to operate terroristically? That is, uh, if that's even a word. Uh, that is, you would kill some civilians who are really liable to be killed because they are guilty of, of uh, all kinds of action that was causally quite important in provoking an unjust war. But the mechanism by which that would contribute to the achievement of the just cause would be that you would cause terror in the population by having killed these civilians, and there's this sort of implicit threat of more. And the the hope is that by killing these civilians, you will terrorize the population and coerce the government to surrender. Could that ever be permissible? Could you ever do that when it's conceded that the people you would be attacking would be liable to be attacked? Would that be terrorism and wrong because it's terrorism? Would it be permissible even though it operates in this terrorist way? One one thought, and uh, this is the last thing I'm going to say, or actually the penultimate thing I'm going to say, Um, is that this does involve a a, a rather pernicious form of using people intentionally as a means of influencing others, and that may be part of what's wrong with terrorism. It's not just that the people attacked are innocent, but that they're being uh, used as a... Their deaths are being used as a means of manipulating other people. There may be a distinctive wrong just in that itself. Final thing I wanted to say is um, nothing I have said today has any bearing on what the law of war should be. My view is that the law of war should retain a categorical prohibition of intentional attacks on civilians uh, 
at least for the foreseeable future. So I'm now just discussing the underlying basic morality, which I think diverges very uh, significantly from what we have as the law. And what we have as the law right now is pretty good law for given the institutional background. So I'm not advocating changing international law here. I'm just asking questions about basic morality. Thanks. I'm going to let Jeff take questions himself. The floor is open. Uh, here and then there. Yes. take a more single-minded obsessive approach of what what will reduce the number of human deaths, period. It makes no distinction between nationality or, mm-hmm. or just or unjust. Just how many humans can we keep alive? And if you, there, and there are obviously some slippery slopes built into this. There, there, it, it assumes people have perfect knowledge and so forth. But um, if, you, if you take the approach, if you take that approach, it at times will justify so-called preemptive wars. The obvious example being, uh, the obvious example you hear given a lot is Hitler. Somebody would have used a single bullet on Hitler, would have saved a lot of lives. Um, And it puts an enormous amount of burden on morally on the person to actually be honest with themselves and say, okay, I've got to try to predict the future here. If we do something aggressively, we know some lives will be lost, roughly how many. If If we sit and do nothing, since none of us can foretell the future, it then becomes probabilities and so forth. But just the pragmatic issues aside, conceptually, is that a productive way to think? Well, in some ways, it is what guides our formulation of the law of war. Um, But we think about it in two ways. We We want not to give the authority to think in those ways just to to individuals. So what we try to do is design institutions that are structured in such a way as to yield outcomes that will reduce the number of human deaths. Is that making sense? So we, we say to political leaders, you can't just launch a war that you believe will reduce human deaths. You have to operate through these institutions that are designed to minimize, designed to operate in such a way as that they will minimize the the number of human deaths. Um, That's that's the way we do with uh, domestic law, for example. We, We don't allow vigilantes to go out and do what they think will uh, reduce harm in the society. So I I may feel I need to take preventive action, uh, you know, go shoot Sarah Palin uh, uh, to prevent disaster. Um, But the courts say, no, 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 you wait, you know, we have to to do these things by procedures that are designed to yield the best outcomes. Um, But there's another model 
which is what I think we should be aiming for in the future. And it's the model that you find in criminal law, uh, which is very different from the international law of war. In criminal law, we don't think, okay, what set of criminal prohibitions will reduce harm overall, giving equal weight to the interests of criminals and innocent people? We actually discount the interests of real live criminals. Once they are, once they are convicted, we put them in jail. We, we wouldn't have to. I mean, we could send them, we could put them off on a luxurious desert island somewhere where they, we, they, they wouldn't harm us anymore and they wouldn't want to leave because we'd set them up, you know, really nice and so on. Um, we, we could do things like that, but our aim isn't to run a system that's going to redu- that's going to result in the least harm to everybody. We distinguish between the innocent and the guilty. And my view is the morality of war distinguishes between the innocent and the guilty. And harms to the guilty are just discounted by their liability. And those harms just don't matter as much because those people are liable to suffer those harms by virtue of what they've done. I said also that the law doesn't work that way. But ultimately, I would like to see the law work that way so that ultimately I would like to see the law of war look a lot more like criminal law in this respect, distinguishing between the innocent and the guilty. Uh, yeah, in, at the table. Okay. Uh, it's not a hypothetical, unfortunately, it happens every day. If there's a military objective and you have uh, two choices, and, it's military, and taking out the military objective is definitely going to entail civilian casualties, and you have two choices, you can you know, use a predator drone or you can send in your own small unit and you're going to have uh, loss of your own life but a dramatic reduction in loss of civilians. Are you ethically enjoined to send in your own soldiers with your own loss of life in order to protect those extra civilians from being killed? Um, within limits, yes. Um, these are innocent people. Let's assume for the sake of argument that the, the people who will be killed as a side effect are completely innocent. They bear no responsibility for this. They're unthreatening and so on. They're not responsible for the threat that, that we face from whoever it is we're fighting. We've got to conduct our operations in a way that minimize the harm to them. Uh, even if that involves taking greater risks to ourselves. We can't impose the costs of our own defense on other people. There are proportionality limits to that. You can see the, the analog in individual self-defense. Everybody in this room is innocent except you. You're trying to kill me. The only way I can stop you is to lob a grenade over there that's going to kill 20 people in that area of the room. I'll be safe. I can duck behind the podium, and, and I'm okay. That's just dis, you know, it's disproportionate harm. I've got, suppose, you know, suppose I've got two options. I can lob the grenade, and I'm, I'm definitely safe. Or I can do something riskier. I can pull out the weapon I always carry and aim for your hand or something like that. So I'm 50% chance of survival that way. Well, I think I have to use the, the, the means that involve a much greater risk to myself rather than imposing the cost of my defense on these other innocent people. There's an assumption in that question that the two methods of attack are equally efficient. If it's impossible to get that target with the special forces and the only way to get it is predator drone, then the answer would be? That's a different calculation. It's not comparative anymore. Right. So I take it the question was, do, do we in 
conducting our own defense have to accept greater risk to ourselves uh, in order to m reduce casualties to innocent people? And my answer was, uh, within limits, yes, w we definitely do. In a way, um, soldiers will, I think, agree with you about that just because it's their professional role to, to, to take these risks. I mean, that's what they're being paid for. If I'm walking past a burning house, I may not have to take the risk of going in and pulling the, the elderly lady out the second floor, but if I'm a firefighter whose job it is to take risks to save other people, then I have to do that. In, uh, in the way back there, and then... Uh, good. There are about 20 things to say about that. I could, well, yeah, so I could say that, that's, that's precisely the point. I mean, we could abstract this and, and, and get several distinct questions out of that, out of that one question. Because the, initially I thought the self-imposed constraints that you were referring to were prudential. But actually what you had in mind were self-imposed moral constraints. We won't go in and target civilian infrastructure and so on. But initially, but in the end, we ended up killing civilians and probably more than we would have killed had we done the other thing. Um, but suppose that the, the initial killings would have been intentional. If they were all equally unintentional, then it's probably an easy question. That is, you take a poll of the, of the civilian population, both Serbian and Albanian Kosovar and so on, you say, would you rather the United States act early and kill fewer civilians as a side effect or act later and kill more civilians as a side effect? You know what the answer is going to be. And so it's obviously better to do it first if you're confident in your predictions. There is also uh, another kind of question uh, raised by the Kosovo intervention, uh, which concerned self-imposed prudential constraints. That is, when the United States and NATO e eventually did intervene, uh, we flew our planes very high, so there wasn't a single American casualty in that war. Uh, we flew out of the range of the anti-aircraft weapons, and by doing so, bombed a lot more indiscriminately than we could have done had we flown low and exposed our pilots to... to uh, 
Well, I'm 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 telling you what I've heard. Um, uh, that by flying high up, targeting was less precise. Um, and more civilians were killed than would have been killed had uh, the planes been flown another way, been flown lower. I think there's a really interesting thing to be said about that, which is that insofar as our intervention really was humanitarian and we were just getting uh, snatching people out of their ordinary lives or out of their sort of ordinary military lives in the United States to go over and put their lives at risk to save other people, uh, where the aim was the defense of the very people who were being harmed by our less discriminate bombing, it's not unreasonable to suppose that they should bear a disproportionate share of the costs of, of the intervention. So if you're drowning, for example, and there are two ways I can pull you out. One way I can pull you out is going to break your arm and I, nothing happens to me. The other way I can pull you out is going to break both of our little fingers. Maybe I can pull you out by breaking your arm. I say, you know, look, I'm doing you a favor. You take the cost, not me. I think about it that way. Um, I think... Well, both. Okay. That's nice because um, what you're suggesting shows that what, I, what I'm going to say is we just can't have this kind of knowledge. I'm talking about an ideal here, and what we have to do is act on morally and even more so legally, act on the basis of presumptions that seem to us to be reasonable and justified. 
I'm, I'm, I'm sort of considering questions about what, what it would be permissible to do in the ideal situation in which we had knowledge about, about individuals. Sometimes we have more knowledge, sometimes we have less. The thing I was going to say was nice about this is that just as we don't have the kind of knowledge about who's responsible and who's not responsible, who's really liable and who's not liable, so it's often very difficult to tell who's a combatant and who's not a combatant. So although the view that I've been advocating here has this problem, so does the traditional view. And your mention of the Celtic women and so on is an example of this. And even if some Celtic women are pretty fierce and get out with their spears or whatever they've got, they don't all, and it's not true of all of them. So if the English say, ah, well, Celtic women, some of them are pretty tough barbarians, so we can kill any of them. That's just as indiscriminate. And, and again, if the English had to ask themselves, now which of them are spear chuckers and which aren't, you know, you're just not going to be able to tell unless you see the spear in the hand. Um, two things quickly. Um, I think most terrorists subjectively don't think of what they're doing as indiscriminate. Rather, I think most terrorists actually hold to doc doctrines of collective guilt and collective uh, liability. So all you've got to do to be liable to attack uh, is be American or be Israeli or whatever. Um, one final point. Um, punishment doesn't enter into this at all. And nothing I say about war uh, in, in involves punishment. It's, these ideas are not punitive. They are entirely, everything here is grounded on the notion of defense. Um, yeah. In Afghanistan, in the first seven months of um, this year, about 5,000 people were killed and half of them uh, probably under the area of the body, most of them. Uh, and the area of the body was too high or too low. Uh, on the part of those that were doing this area of bombardment, so they are not really that many men. But if they are on the ground, probably in those Taliban controlled areas, there will be higher casualties of the Taliban forces. So that's, that, that's known. My question is about where would you put the TMJ doctrine here now to address the dangers of the disease that we Well, this goes back to the first question, which was also a question about preemptive attack. And the answer I would give uh, would invoke the kind of distinction that I gave in responding to the first question. That is, I think there are cases in which unilateral preemptive action by one state against another is morally justified. Would I want right now a rule of law that gave that authority to individual states? No, because everybody would be invoking it all the time. Everybody feels threatened by everybody. So what's going to work best at the level, I mean, what's going to be true at the level of individual decision making isn't going to necessarily give you the, the best rules and in particular not going to give you the best international law. So right now, I think I would be in, I'm in favor of a prohibition of preventive war 
unilateral preventive war unauthorized by the UN or some better body. But this is just this is because of the imperfect set of institutions that we have and, and so on. Morally, preventive war can be permissible. I mean, I was, I, if you call this preventive war, I was very happy when um, Israel uh, blew up the Iraqi Daimona reactor in 1981 or whenever that was. That was a preemptive, I mean, you can call it a war if you want to. Um, I, don't, I don't mind. Uh, it would involve the military incursion by one power into the, into the territory of another and the destruction of... Pardon? Well, um, you know, I've I've looked back and read the original New York Times articles and looked at others. So I can't I can't figure out whether French workers were actually killed or not. Some of the reporting at the time says no one was injured, the, and some some of the things I've read say there were one or two French workers who were killed. Um, you could just I mean I th- I, th- I think. First of all, if, if, if you're working there, that does actually give you a certain. I mean, you don't have a valid complaint if 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 you're helping to build uh, a facility that's going to provide that's intended and pretty openly intended to provide nuclear weapons for a state like Iraq. If you're engaged in facilitating that kind of thing, you take what you get. But even so, the the stakes were high enough so that even if they even if those had been you know little children who had wandered across the desert and were playing games in the it probably uh, would have been justified even then uh, you know, the, the nice thing was that they, they the, the reactor was soon to go online that was the last choice before uh, I, I don't know who's um, I'll go here I'm sorry I don't know who, in what order the hands went up I'm sorry um, so I'm hoping to uh, help you sound a little less like what's on Thank you. I did shave not long ago. (laughs) (laughs) The Jewish settlers case, when you have the settlers who look like they might be liable, then you ask, well, can we kill them if the mechanism by which that would help uh, makes these other people want? Think that we're going to kill them? Because if that's the mechanism, then it seems like the answer should be no. Okay. If If it's wrong for me to kill you, then it should be wrong for me to make me think, make you think I'm going to kill you to get you to do something that I want you to do. Yes, but that kind of wrong isn't terribly wrong. <laughs> so, you know, I want to get you to do something that you that I have no right that you do. But no, no, sorry, let me think about this. Can you clarify what you said just a little bit more? Because I want to know what you're saying. Look, yeah. suppose, suppose we agree. Let's, yeah. let's agree that it's wrong for Israelis to settle in the West Bank and to try to take that territory in that way. Let's, just, let's make that a point of agreement. Now, there are some Israelis who are living in uh, Tel Aviv who are thinking, let's go start a new settlement. And I know that they're about to do this, so I go and I kill some settlers as a means of trying to deter them from coming up. Now, because I'm, well, I'm deterring them from doing what they ought not to do. Now, suppose instead what I do is I, I, may, I, I don't actually kill or hurt anybody at all. 
but I make these people in Tel Aviv believe that I've killed a bunch of settlers. And as a result of that, they decide not to settle there. Now, I'm manipulating them in a certain way. I've, in some way, I have wronged them, I think, by manipulating them in this way. But if I actually prevent them from doing a much worse wrong in this way, they may be liable to the deception. So it's not a terribly bad thing to do to them. Can you talk, can, can we, do you have a moment after this is all over? I'd like to get clear about what your question is. Um, the, the rightmost of the two of you, I think your hand was up first. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about strategic bombing. Based on your, your uh, moral principles, it seems to me it would be very hard to justify morally an effort to use long-range bombing against civilian populations as a means to hasten the end of war. Or to I'm, I must say I'm really delighted that you inferred that. I'm less Obama, I mean, Osama-ish, if I... Let me ask you you a question about Vietnam and be more more contemporary. I mean, here we have a presidential race, and no one has really questioned the issue that John McCain is an honorable American who served his country honorably. And what did he do that was honorable other than survive torture? What he did that was honorable was engage in strategic bombing in which civilians would inevitably die. Based on your principles, isn't John McCain a war criminal? Not a war criminal, but somebody who did wrong, yes. I, I, uh, look, I believe the Vietnam War was an unjust war. There was no just cause. I mean, it was an unjust war in the sense that there was no just cause. There was just nothing that could justify our being at war there. Uh, he was dropping bombs that I, mean, I don't know what his intentions were or let's, let's assume the best case. The best case is he was dropping bombs where everybody was intending only damage to military targets but inevitably there was going to be some incidental collateral damage to civilians on the, the view that I've been Arguing for here, yeah, he was engaged in wrongful action. There's nothing to celebrate there. I mean, you can be kind of heroic if you do that kind of stuff. You put yourself at risk believing that what you're doing is right. Let's assume that McCain believed that it was a just war and so on. Wrongdoing is compatible with the exercise of certain virtues. So I can, I can exercise genuine moral virtues in doing what is, in fact, morally wrong. And best case is John McCain... Uh, manifested genuine moral virtues in doing what was wrong. I'm not sure what virtues are involved in being held prisoner, but I guess, you know, it shows you're pretty tough if you survive it, I guess. Um, Yeah, here, and then back over here.
but that punishment comes after the, the end of that war. And, and, and so in that sense, I guess, uh, where does the, the uh, where does a moral problem stop Okay. Um, good. That's a good question. Um, on my view, moral responsibility never transfers from one person to another just by association or by kinship or anything of the sort. Moral responsibility is always individual. Um, in the case of the occupations of uh, Germany and Japan, the point was forward-looking, not retributive or punitive. It wasn't to punish people, but it was to establish conditions in which the features of those cultures and the political institutions that those cultures had given rise to could be dismantled and restructured to guarantee that those societies wouldn't again, erupt into aggressive war. So, and, and occupation was judged to be necessary to accomplish those forward-looking aims. And given that the people were participants in the culture that, had, that needed to be restructured, they had to suffer the burdens of occupation long enough for that restructuring to take place. So that would be the justification. It's, you know, it's, it's backward looking to what they had done in the past, but it was forward looking in terms of the intended effects. So then, so then I guess if the occupation in Iraq goes well, then are you saying that that's justified because they were implicit somewhat in No, the Iraq occupation is totally different in that I don't think that there was anything that anything like a majority of people in Iraq did to make themselves liable to be occupied by the United States. Uh, the way I would interpret the current occupation of Iraq is uh, as follows. I mean, again, there's no, no news here, no, nothing new I'm saying here, except putting it in terms of these moral categories that I've outlined for you. You can have what is basically an unjust war that causes so much destruction to political institutions that it leaves a, 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 a gap in political authority that has to be filled by somebody so that you can have basically a morally justified occupation as a consequence of an unjust war. Because you create the conditions in which you may wrongfully create the conditions in which you then have to impose further burdens to prevent the consequences of your initial wrongful action from being even worse. Ideally, in the case of occupations following unjust wars where political structures are destroyed and somebody's got to fill the vacuum of authority, the best thing would be to have uh, occupation run by a neutral power. It'd be much better if... Uh, Morally, in my view, it would be much better if the occupation of Iraq could be actually conducted by uh, a party or parties that had no role in the war 
though, of course, the, 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 burden of the, the financial burden of the occupation ought to be supported by the power that made the occupation necessary, namely the United States. But I mean, I'm now in uh, utopia, uh, asking a, a major power to finance an occupation done by somebody else. Warn Jeff that by 1:30, people may have left for other classes, but no one, or very few, are leaving. Well, yeah, so there are quite a few stragglers. That's great. Uh, but let me let me make sure there's still a crowd to thank you for all you've done before they do straggle off more, and then you're okay. Yeah, we can keep going for those who want to hang around. Say, but I wanted to get at least a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> We will Ask the gentleman across from me if he's okay with your going. Oh, do you still want to go? Uh, yeah. I'll take you and then. It seems to me your, your argument would be strengthened with more emphasis upon the question of appropriateness, which is what part of the Quinn teaches, of just war theory. In other words, you can't discuss proportionality without discussing appropriateness. And the fact that the requirement is that, that violence be clearly. Okay. Solution and one that is determined by the absence of any other, any other solution. Right. You, you fit the proportionality side of it. Yes, I, I, I think what you mean by appropriateness, I would call just cause, which you know, in the traditional lingo, and that would mean that's the aim that's of the right sort to make military means appropriate or justified. So you've got to have that aim. And my view is that... But all other measures must first be exhausted. That's right, it is. In, in, in just war theory, they, they phrase it in the way that you have, namely last resort, other means have to be exhausted. I would, I would, I would articulate that requirement differently. I would call it not the requirement of last resort, but the requirement of necessity, Me just meaning simply that this is the only real way you can do it effectively. That doesn't mean I've got to try everything else first. If I can sort of think about other things, and if I can see they're not going to work, I don't have to try them. Yeah, the guy's coming at you with a gun. That's right. They're not going to have economic sanctions. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's good. As long as you're not flogging me, that's... Um, World War II, which was a just war by any accounts in, in the United States anyway, in the Pacific War, uh, Curtis LeMay tried to use the same kind of precision bombing that we used in Europe, where we targeted military facilities, used high explosives, totally ineffective. So he, so he, he comes upon a solution that's to use fire bombs to destroy basically large swaths of Japanese cities and in the process kills tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Japanese. Uh, just war, would be a terrorist and a war criminal? By the way, he's an Ohio State graduate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry to say that you do have a terrorist and war criminal among your honored alumni. Well, he, he admitted that, in a sense. But he said it's a good thing we won because if we were, if we were being judged under Nuremberg, Mm -hmm. well, yeah, moving beyond that, then, how about the folks that dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Oh, there was much nice stuff. 
<laughs> Tibbetts was out in Ohio too, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, no, Floridian. He lived here for a while. He lived here. Oh, wait a minute. Hang on. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. I'm mixing him up with some other notorious people um, that I was reading about recently. You know, I've... Um, Talk about a situation where you kill a couple million people but save potentially, or you, you kill hundreds of thousands but potentially save millions of lives. That's what Tibbetts believed till. Man. That's what Tibbetts believed till till his death. Um, probably right. Well, I don't know. There's a lot of literature on this. Um, look at Okinawa and how, how many civilians died in that campaign. You're assuming though that. Uh, land invasion was the only alternative to dropping atom bombs. Look, there were a lot of there were a lot of options that could have been explored. This is going back to necessity or last resort here. Admittedly, we didn't have a huge stockpile of atom bombs, but we know good and well that we had two. We could have tried one on an uninhabited island, just a, a demonstration explosion to see what happened. Um, we knew from intercepted cable traffic between uh, the Japanese and the Russians that there was a surrender party within the Japanese cabinet, that they wanted to get the Russians on board to help them negotiate a conditional surrender. We know that the Russians entered the war very shortly before uh, Japan surrendered. I don't think anybody knows whether it was the second bomb on Nagasaki or the entry of the Russian, the declared entry of the Russians into the war against Japan that uh, made, you know, made the difference in uh, cabinet-level decision-making among the Japanese. We just don't know any of this stuff. And so I think it's, it's a mistake to assume that the case was either don't defeat the Japanese or drop atom bombs on cities or conduct a land invasion of the Japanese islands and lose a huge number of American soldiers and kill probably more Japanese civilians in the process. I don't think those exhausted the possibilities at the time. Well, let's use an alternative then. We, we blockade the islands of Japan and millions of Japanese starve because they can't get oil in, they can't, you know, their economy falls apart. Uh, is that justified? Uh, no, that's killing them just as, that's killing them just as, just as dead. Just as dead, yeah. Uh, well, what are we guilty of then, in blockading Japan? Well, the same thing I might be guilty of if I locked you in a closet and didn't let any food go in for a month and a half or something. More though, I mean, Japan started it. Again, it's a question of what other, what other options there are. They have an alternative to surrender. I mean, it is war. Um, I see what you're saying, yes. Um, the civilians themselves don't have the option of surrendering. So again, you'd be using their deaths as a means of putting pressure on the, the leadership. So you lock all the Japanese in the closet. They may be hammering on the door and screaming to get out and saying, yeah, well, we're happy to surrender. But you know, they've got to wait for their leaders to, to say that. If you know, if if I were Osama bin Laden and held a doctrine, a real doctrine of sort of collective liability, and I held that every Japanese was guilty of this war, uh, then that might be okay. Locking them all in the closet—that is, if they were really all liable to to extreme harm to bring the war to an end—then that would be okay. But I'm I'm claiming that even if the Japanese, which was a 
a real paradigm of a pretty complicit population, if there ever was one, in the sense that I, mean, I think they were probably less complicit than Germans, but it doesn't, doesn't matter, because they, they were sort of individually less autonomous, I think, from what I can tell. Still, um, the problem with the blockade is that the people you're harming uh, can't themselves do what it is you're wanting their group to do. There's no telling when the Japanese government might give in. So if you block, the, the, a blockade that would have led to as many deaths as the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki would have been just as bad and just as wrong. And, I mean, do you see why? At least why I'm yeah, claiming yeah. it. I mean, why I'm claiming it. It's because... Okay, uh, Justin? So I'm and then trying to think about the question that you invited us to think about at the end of the talk. Make sure I understand. Good. Which is whether, uh, whether attacking, whether an attack on citizens who have made themselves liable, non-combatants who made themselves liable, uh, which is undergone, which is attempted as terrorism, that is to eliminate a threat, not by um, getting rid of the people who are opposing the threat, but rather by taking uh, the will of the nation to do this. Right. Uh, whether that's okay or not. Um, whether, there's some, whether there's some further problem about, about, about that, it wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm having trouble thinking about it, partly because, partly because I'm not sure about the notion of liability and the notion of posing threats. So I started trying to think about your, your sheriff case. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem important to the sheriff case that, uh, that when I shoot the sheriff, I will thereby uh, prevent the carried out specifically by preventing an ongoing source of causal influence from the sheriff to the that's right to, to the deputy right so if I if I shot the sheriff and he landed from a great height on the deputy um, uh, that would have been okay too it seems like even though the route wouldn't have been uh, preventing the ongoing that's right that the sheriff yep. providing yeah right um, so so if that's right then I don't see why it makes a difference. If, if we buy that, and I guess I kind of do, then I, then I don't see why it makes a difference whether the, um, whether the liable civilians, uh, whether the way that I eliminate the threat to me uh-huh. uh, through attacking the liable civilians is, is, is terroristic or, um, or, or by a more circuitous route. Yeah, or... Or, or more direct route, maybe. Yep, yep. Uh, that seems right to me. I, I, I regard that as bad news. Um, there's a... I think it does make a difference that the sheriff is on hand and could stop it at any time. That makes a difference. That is, if if it has to operate through the will of 
third parties or something like that, that might make a difference. Um, I'm thinking now with the parallels with torture, for example. Um, torturing somebody who's liable, you know, who knows where he's himself planted the bomb or whatever, um, could be a permissible form of using a person in a terrible way. But it wouldn't be using him to influence the decision-making of other people. And he could always bring it to an end himself so it doesn't have to sort of go on. And same with the sheriff. You know, the sheriff could stop the thing at any time. So insofar as he's not doing it, he remains instrumental in a way. Um, No, 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 because in the way that I, I tried to set the example up so that he was so far away that he couldn't shout or anything like that, so that's why I wanted it that way. Yeah, sorry. So that's a kind of red herring for what we're saying. No, I think you're right. The using does seem to, to bring in, the using does seem to be, to be a, seem to me to be a distinctive and relevant consideration, but doesn't seem to be a decisive one morally to make it impermissible to do the killing. I thank you for that. I think you're just right. Um, yeah. Uh, back there, yeah. And then, did you? I think not. I, I think I want to separate the the kind of something that is, I think, really objective. Is there a just aim here, a just goal or not? I think there can be a just cause or a just goal um, even when the people who claim to be pursuing it don't care a fig about it. You know, they're they're interested in doing other things, still doesn't undermine the claim that there is a just goal. Now, is it a just war? This is a this is a kind of old question, I think, to which I have never had a, an answer, and that is, can the conduct of a war that could be a just war if it were conducted in a... Uh, Restra appropriately restrained manner, make a war that would otherwise be just be an unjust war? Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, it's an unjust war because it's unjust in the way that it's being executed, but that still is compatible with it being, in some sense, a just war in the sense that such a war could justly be fought. So may maybe this is all just kind of a matter of how we're using words here. Maybe I'm not seeing the the big substantive, substantive difference. What we can say is, well, this could have been a could have been a, a war that was overall justified. There was a just cause and so on. But the execution of the thing has been worse than if the war wasn't fought at all, or worse than 
it could ideally have been, even if it's better than if the war wasn't fought at all. And so those are all grounds for substantive moral criticism of the war. And whether we want to say that makes it an unjust war or not is just a kind of linguistic question, I think. Okay. Are we, in that case, aren't we just conflating the old questions of uh, just ad bellum versus just in bellum? Like yeah. Justice in war versus justice for war? Y- well, y- yes, but... I, my view is that they have to be kind of run together. They're, my view is they're not as they're not as distinct as the traditional theory says they are. Um, one thing that I said today, which is really quite radical within the tradition, is that um, really there's no way to fight an unjust war in a just manner. So that means they're they can't be distinct. Now, the, the, these, the question here is. If you fight a war that could be just in an unjust manner, does that mean that it's just an unjust war? And I guess I'm saying, well, I don't know. It depends on what you mean by just war. Yeah? Uh, you, you've drawn a clear line between the military and civilians. But, uh, I think there is some areas... See you tonight, Dan. ...which um, there is, like, for example... Okay. I'm sorry. You said that the civilians are the people who don't hold a threat. The military, but I think like some in some cases the the, the military themselves kind of pose a threat. Like for example, the prisoners of war, like killing them in cold, in cold blood. I think this is unethical. Unethical. Yeah, of course. Um, so this is number one. Number two is about the use of um, some banned weapons during war. Uh-huh. Like uh, I'm I'm trying to think with uh, I mean with the mind of of some military leader, and what I what I think is to get my objective done. So, mm-hmm. using, like, for example, the Israelis in, in the war with the Hezbollah, they used cluster bombs, which is, you know, the, 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 they are internationally banned. But according to them, to the Israeli military leadership, they think that it's a little game. So, what do you think of that? In general, I think that bans on particular weapons are kind of morally grounded in a direct way only if the weapons are really in highly indiscriminate. Uh, and of course, that's the best ground for banning a particular weapon. Um, sometimes some weapons are just kind of unnecessarily pain-inducing. That is, so you could have two, two weapons. Um, they're equally effective in killing people, but let's suppose one of them kills people with a lot more agony than the other does. Mm-hmm. Then use of the one that causes more agony is just clearly morally wrong. It's, it violates the, what, what the just war people call the requirement of minimal force. Mm-hmm. Um, you're causing more harm than you need to to achieve your end. Um, sometimes, though, bans on particular weapons are just based on a shared sense that they're not really necessary and could kind of get out of hand or something where the use of the weapon really wouldn't be any worse than the use of some permitted weapon, morally. But we just kind of agree not to use these things. When you achieve those agreements, that's a good thing. 
the, the, the more you can kind of narrow the, the field, the better. So I think in, some, in, in cases, some, some weapons that are banned, um, it could be permissible to use them morally, but it's better if both sides can agree not to use them. Um, I don't. I honestly don't know enough about cluster weapons to, to to know the different. I mean, to know what what the story is there. I do know this that the weapons that Hezbollah shot into northern Israel were also uh, what seem. I mean, they were scattershot weapons. That is, when they exploded, they um, shot out. I don't know, tens of thousands of pellets that were intended to kill anybody that was in the that was in the area. Um, I actually uh, was in Haifa and that area about a year and a half ago. So it was about six months after the after that exchange between Hezbollah and the IDF across the southern Lebanese border, and. Um, I was staying with a friend who's a philosopher in Haifa, and just down about a block down the street from his house, there was, was a place where one of the uh, Hezbollah bombs had exploded. It exploded actually in a children's playground. Not that they meant to send it there. I mean, they just meant to send it wherever it would go. But within an enormous radius of where the bomb went off, every house, every fence, every tree, even the road, even the road, the, and I don't know exactly how this happened, but everything you could see was pockmarked. Every inch was pockmarked with these, with these, uh, you know, by these pellets. So that that seems to me. I guess a cluster bomb is maybe a similar kind of thing. It it shoots out stuff all over everywhere to try to kill as many people as, as you can kill. Yeah, and particularly if you if if the targets are. Uh, rocket launchers inside Lebanese villages. Why do you need a cluster weapon to destroy something like that? It's not going I mean, cluster weapons, I guess, are, are meant to kill. If they're like the bombs that Hezbollah shot into Israel, they're intended to kill anybody in the, in the area. They're intended to be indiscriminately uh, lethal. Um, yeah, so that would be that would that would just look that just looks like simple terrorism to me. If you're just trying to kill anybody who's around, there's you know it's it's not particularly un, unusual or surprising that um, both sides in conflicts use terrorist tactics. Even if you're fighting uh, just war. Terrorism, yeah, terrorism is a matter of the means. It doesn't have anything to do with the with the ends. So yeah, you can use terrorism in a just war. That is, you can you can. I could use terrorism to make you do your homework better. <laughs> you know, it, uh, I, you can use you can use terrorist tactics for any end, no matter how just or how unjust. I don't know how to turn this thing off.